welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we start a two-part special Christmas program by Lewis Paul Lehman. This sermon is from 1978 and is entitled, God's Ugly Child. Born September 12, 1914 in Chicago, Illinois, Lehman was something of a spiritual child prodigy. He accepted Christ at age six, and at age 15, he founded the Franklin Gospel Tabernacle in Franklin, Pennsylvania. Enjoy this in-depth program. This week, we start with part one, and next Sunday, we finish with part two. Before spotlights ever split the night sky above Hollywood, or a television camera zeroed in on a glamour parade, before producers and writers and directors collaborated over elaborate notes to decide the right moment to raise the curtain, God knew the secrets of dramatic timing. He sent the faint blush of morning to warm the sky before the day came dancing through the fountains and brightness was orchestrated to the shining baton of the sun. If we think for a moment that Shakespeare or Plutarch, Homer or Vardy were originals, there is not a plot, a ploy, a gimmick of artistry, drama, or music that would even operate were it not for the dramatic techniques of the creator. The lightning before the thunder, the pain before the childbirth, the sob in the throat before the stormy tears, the twinkle in the eye before the laughter, the gasp before the death. All life and nature are scripted by the infinite playwright. And through the curtain of mystery steps Isaiah. He warms up the audience. He describes the abilities of the star performer. He is reckless. He spills words as fragrant bouquets. The listener may think he exaggerates, but the ringmaster of the great advent knows that nothing he can say can eclipse or oversell the tremendous happening that will change history, swing the pendulum of time in another direction, revolutionize society, and even to this hour dominate the lives of millions in the philosophy of civilized mankind. Of course, there had been others who had foretold this remarkable staging of God. It had been placarded on the sealed gates of Eden. It had been given audio-visual demonstrations in the Passover blood, the birth of Isaac, the Psalms of David. But now comes Isaiah. Unto us a child is born, he says. Unto us a son is given, Isaiah 9, 6. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah seven fourteen. Then the loud voice softens down. If he has joyously announced the birth of a child, the revelation of a miracle, he, he hesitates. Did I see a tear slide from the eyelid and leave a path down his cheek? Perhaps so. Isaiah 53, 2, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Unto us a child is born, said Isaiah, a child born, born miraculously. And so we put the halo above Mary. The straw in the manger glows with the light of a holy presence. We see it all now. He came into the world. Music has been written for the season of his coming. We have turned the celebration of his birth into one of the most lovely occasions of all the year. Wherever the church has gone, wherever the Bible is known, wherever Christians have put their mark upon the culture, oh, beautiful Christmas time. There's something wonderful about any baby, but this baby, he came, and homes are filled with the good odors of the Christmas cookies. Customs are trotted out from the old countries from which the refugees fled, and immigrants came to a more promising place. And Merry Christmas, everybody sings, we come a-caroling. Teenagers will parade around the church platform as the shepherds, and middle-aged men will wear fake beards and put gold braid on their bathrobes and play the Eastern Kings. Christmas! The concert hall will come alive with a hallelujah chorus. Radios and televisions will play Christmas music and the secular songs of Christmas and the traditional songs, beautiful indeed. Ah, it's wonderful for Christmas. But what about Christ himself? Maybe a few irascible souls would vote to eliminate Christmas. Scrooge still haunts his own ghost now and then, but, oh, Christmas, we accept that's good for business, good for families, good for kids, a little break in the year, but Jesus himself, ah, oh, that's what Isaiah saw, when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him, God's ugly child, like a serpent. It may seem inappropriate to speak of Jesus as God's ugly child, but I find Jesus himself emphasizing that idea in his dialogue with Nicodemus, that Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night. If this man, himself a traditional embodiment of Judaism, really meant what he said, we know you, Jesus, you're a teacher sent from God. If he meant that, then Nicodemus learned some revolutionary and amazing things. Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Did this strict follower of the law understand that? He born again? But there it was. Except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, how could this be that a man could be born again? The omniscient is going to unlock a new door. The well-read, well-informed, well-practiced Pharisee has his own portfolio and he has the picture of one who has come to redeem him. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3.13 And then it spills out. God has sent his Son into the world to die, to be lifted up, and through faith in him, whosoever will may believe and have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent. Ah, Nicodemus was privy to that history. He knew about the serpent. The Israelites in the wilderness were under the chastisement of God. They were bitten by snakes. The bitten ones died. They repented. They prayed. God gave them a remedy. 
A brazen serpent was hoisted up on a pole, and whoever looked to that metallic insignia lived. The great question that was settled by that serpent was the question of life. They knew they had sinned, they repented, but the result of their sin worked havoc. They died. When that brazen serpent was put on the pole, they were already forgiven. But one question remains, how to live? The way to live was very plain. Look and live. Jesus did not come into the world merely as an example. He came to give himself a ransom for many. The gospel begins with this truth. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:3, this is what we preached first of all. Mysteries gather over Bethlehem and Calvary, Galilee and Gethsemane, over the virgin's miracle and the tomb's emptiness. God intervened in human history. Heaven invaded earth. Eternity scratched open a slot in time and changed the rhythms of the centuries. Moses had the privilege to point to that serpent fashioned by the hands of man at the command of God. But the preacher of the gospel today in the words of the gospel has a greater privilege. Point to the sinless one who became sin for us. The way to live was clearly proclaimed. Look and live. The dying were not told to fight the snakes, make an ointment, minister to others, or keep examining their wounds. They were not told to give an offering to the snakes. Just look and live. That was the personal act by an individual. Parents, friends, community organizations might put together teams to carry the snake-bitten victims, but the one who needed life had to look for himself. Open your eyes, old man. Look! One could stubbornly seal his own doom, refuse the one remedy that could save him, and no other person could do it for him. What wonderful things must have happened in the shadow of that trademark of salvation. Children suddenly released to their exuberance of life. The middle aged restored to assume their responsibility. The aged released from the choking of death. Life! There was life in a look. After the serpent had been placed on the pole, no one died of snake bite. Those who died after the remedy had been provided died of choice the choice to not look and live. The Bible clearly indicates that some will be banished from God forever, that there is a reality called hell. But inasmuch as Jesus has provided the perfect salvation, sinners perish, not because they are not or cannot be forgiven by God, but because they will not look to Jesus. Multitudes love that baby in Bethlehem. The Christmas story delights them. They fondled the words of the carols and smiled benignly at the children in the Christmas play. But the baby in the manger has been lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness to continue to analyze the wound to see if the sin is great enough that you need a savior, to make pilgrimages to Bethlehem in symbolic pageantry, to compound ointments that might work, or to organize work and task forces that can do enough good in a lifetime to justify you in eternity. These are all empty gestures. Jesus has been lifted up. Look and live.
Maybe the original of all Christmas carols, surely one of the first expressions of a Christian creed, is Paul's manifesto to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The scriptures never let us forget that magnificent revelation of God when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who shall declare his generation? asked Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of the prophecy. His deity had no need of borning. God, eternal and self-existent, without beginning, without ending, requires no begetting. He is his own generation, none before him, and there shall be none after him. But when he, the God who created all things, would become a man, he needs generation. He must borrow from a virgin. He must perform by a miracle. He must limit his prerogatives. He must restrict his rights. And when we see him, no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah said he is like a root out of dry ground. Now we love green growing things to watch the fields bandage their gash from the plow with the elaborate stitches of the grain, to stand with children and clap delightedly over a window box full of pansies, to, to kneel in the garden and plant the bulb, the seed, the cutting, with a fervent prayer and watch it climb out of its apparent death. and Oh, there's excitement in that. But a root out of dry ground. <laughs> How ugly. Did Isaiah question Jesus' generation? He said it was barren soil. There are two records of Jesus' family tree. Luke traces the family of Mary, his mother, and Joseph, Mary's husband, receives a genealogical rundown in Matthew's Gospel. In those lines to the Bethlehem baby is a motley parade. It's dry ground. Walk over it barefoot and won't splash much. A little boring, most people say, as they read those begot, begot, begot. But there are some fascinating exclusions and inclusions in that line. Deuteronomy 29.20 wrote a curse on some men for disobedience to the law of God. Therefore, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and Jehoiakim are, are out. And if it is true that sinners can be blotted out for their sin, it is also true that sinners can be included by God's grace. Four women are mentioned in that line. Tamar was incestuous, Rahab was a harlot, Ruth was a Moabitess, Bathsheba was an adulteress, but they are all in the line of Jesus. See, God has room for sinners because he does forgive and cleanse when sinners have room for him. <laughs> Don't let God surprise you. Think of what he did in protecting a bloodline through centuries. Sometimes it hung on a single life. Sometimes the people in the line were so wicked he wiped out their memory. But sometimes the wicked were so aware of him that he couldn't push them aside. And it was for sinners that Jesus came into the world as a root out of dry ground. He came to seek and save the lost. God demonstrated through the impossible how he was determined to save the lost. The virgin birth is said to be God's way that it might be fulfilled what he had said, Matthew 1.22. 
The miracle birth was a long-standing argument of God with man. He foreshadowed blessings through the barren womb. By the incapable, he produced the promised one. There was the age and barrenness of Sarah, past childbearing years, but she birthed Isaac. There was the infertility of Rachel, the closed womb of Elizabeth, and God works with the impossible. God revealed more and more of his plan. John Trapp, whom Spurgeon called the quaint commentator, writes that Jesus should be the seed of the woman was made known to Adam, but not of what nation till Abraham, nor of what tribe till Jacob, nor of what sex till David, nor whether born of a virgin till Isaiah. Then asked this old writer, was it not as easy to frame this second Adam in the womb as that first Adam out of the mire? God is working, always working wonders out of dry ground. You can see it again in Jesus' Nazareth days. The contempt in which that city was held sneers to the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was enough to make him despicable. He's a Nazarene. The Hebrew word means sprout or shoot. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stock of Jesse, a, a Nazarene. The idea of the root out of dry ground is especially noticeable in Jesus' office as a priest or a mediator. Hebrews 6.20 designates him as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had no earthly claim to priesthood. He was a king. He had royal claims but he had no priestly claims. When it says of Melchizedek, he was without father or mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but a priest continually, like the Son of God, Hebrews 7.3. It is not contending that this fellow plopped down from the sky in a UFO and disappeared in a spaceship, and he'll be found someday strumming a harp on a distant planet as yet unknown by astronomers. What it does mean is simple. Melchizedek, the priest had no claim to the office. Neither his mother or father was of the priestly line. We do not know when he was born or when he died, or the nature of his priesthood as to when it started or stopped. He was a, a God-ordained priest. And thus with Jesus, he had regal claims. He was a king. He came from the stock of Jesse, the tribe of Judah. By descent or generation, he's a king. But priests came by the Levitical line, and in that sense, he had no generation of priesthood. He was a God-appointed priest. Jesus is a root, a new beginning. If you become attached to Jesus Christ, and that's the genius of the gospel, it provides for actual, vital, living relationship to Christ by faith. We become what the apostle calls new creatures in Christ. You enter into a new life, and he is the origin and life of that new creaturehood. You may, as millions do, see Jesus as an interesting character. He has been the subject of art, music, literature. The question is, have you been fastened to him? Is he the source of your life? He says that those who believe in him, united with him as a branch to the vine. Now, where the vine begins or where the branch begins, well, that's the living union of Christ and his believer. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Do nothing. Ha <laughs> ha, that's real Christianity. Colossians 2, 7, rooted and built up in him. 
in a restaurant one day where they give children free birthday cakes and free ice cream with a dab of sauce on it, I heard a waitress ask a boy, what kind of Sunday do you want? And he replied, as boys will, chocolate. His father moved in quickly, said they don't make chocolate anymore. The boy blinked. Don't make chocolate, you mean? And the the father held his pose and said, "Ah, just no more chocolate. For a moment, his world exploded. No more chocolate. Until his little sister giggled and said, Ah, they wouldn't do that. (laughs) What an awful prospect for a child. And some of us older children. A world without chocolate. But what about a world, a life, without Jesus? I can imagine a world without bread, without water, without sunlight, Hills without trees, valleys without meadows, nights without stars, oceans without waves, but but me without without that Jesus who left his Oh me without Jesus. Never let that be. He is the root of all my life. He is the strength that never fails, the light that always guides, the God who always cares, the mind that always knows. Frustrated and angry at times, we may cry out, if just somebody knew the answer, he knows. Out of dry ground indeed, but the Christ of God is the living hope and continual joy of those attached to him joined to Jesus. Oh, blessed thought. A little girl in one of my pastorates was driving down the street with her dad, and it was Christmas time. Store windows were glittering, dangling, scintillating with lights, huge toys, tiny moving figures, elaborate fashion. She was, well, she was charmed with all of it. And then she saw it. On the front lawn of a church was the the manger scene. Out in the cold, snowy night, there it was. Life-size figures, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, a few sheep, and the manger, and the baby Jesus in the manger. What is that? she asked her father. He explained as best he could to a four-year-old. The baby, you mean? Yes, the baby. Well, that's the baby Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is God's son, and he came to earth because he loves us, and he, he wants us to be his people, so he came as a baby. Such humiliation of deity is uh, difficult for a four-year-old. In fact, it's, it's difficult for me. It's been a long time since I was four. Well, how do you explain that? But Judy grasped part of it. The traffic was heavy. They were hardly moving in the car. She stared at the figures out in the night, lights from behind bushes to illuminate the colors and the shapes. And then she was at the door handle, ready to jump out. Well, she said, if that's Jesus, we'll just take him home with us. applaud that action. After all, that's the whole meaning of God's Son coming to earth. We, uh, we take him home with us. Even in the lowly symbol I, uh, I want to examine with you now, this is where the gospel is. Take him into your home, into your life. 
You see, there's a portrait of Jesus as a servant, the ox, the burden bearer. He comes home with us to walk in the lonely shadows with us, to put his almightiness under our load, to weep with us in the darkness, become part of our everyday lives. The Christ of God has made himself available as the patient yoke fellow. He always takes the heavy end, leaves the light for me. What a burden bearer is Jesus. In Ezekiel's weird chamber of imagery, you hardly get inside the door until there are creatures such as you have never seen before. They have wings, four of them. Now that will hold you for a moment, and then they have hands under their wings, and even their feet are peculiar. But their faces, familiar faces. You recognize the likenesses at once. Now Ezekiel was a clever artist. He painted with a few words the unusual appearance of these creatures so that we may understand there is more than dust in the universe, and there are a great many things beyond our ordinary vision. Therefore, in Ezekiel chapter 1, we stare with amazement, we read with wonder, four living creatures. But their faces, well, there's the face of a man. A human being is a creature of beauty. God made the human form with grace and strength. He has the ability to bend, to stretch, to run, to stand. His face, a marvel in itself. His eyes illuminate him. He gazes upon the world with affection, with greed, with devotion, with fear. There is so much sensitivity in a human face, it's, it's beautiful. Then, says the prophet, the face of a lion. Ha ha! That monarch of the jungle is not without a majestic demeanor. It is contended you cannot prove him the king of beasts, but he surely looks the part. In repose, a thing of beauty, in action, a rhythm of speed and power, and the face of an eagle. Well, not too pretty a countenance, but what, what sovereign skill. He mounts up. His gleaming eye can detect the movements of a fish. He swoops from his rendezvous with the clouds to catch his prey in the sea. Beautiful! One more face listed in Ezekiel 1.10. The face of an ox. Poor ox. He is a plodder, a servant, a strong back. Not much beauty for the artist or the poet. In parades he pulls the wagon. The owner tries to make him match the brightly colored wagon to put a few flowers on his horns, some bells on his harness, but, but he's an ox. He has great sad eyes that stare out on the world as though he knew some inner sorrow, has no power to express it. The ox. Ah, that's a strange sketch for the Son of God. God's ugly child, the, the ox. The four Gospels that open the New Testament have been said to resemble these four faces of Ezekiel chapter 1. The face of a man. Well, that's Luke's Gospel. Probably the most beautiful piece of literature ever written. It depicts Jesus as the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. But, but there's a dignity, a holy hush as he drinks from common cups and gathers little children in his arms, the man, the Christ. Then there's the face of a lion, the royal one. That's Matthew's gospel. He is the king who offers himself to a people who do not want him. They reject him. Well, that's true, but, but he is kingly. He speaks parables of a kingdom. He seats himself on a mountain, 
the stones become his throne, and fishermen still smelly from the sea, the nets and the harvest of fish of the subjects. They serve as courtiers whose manners are as crude as the ducks. They are, they are his attendants. Their social graces as elegant as clods and blunderers, but, but in his presence they have a royal bearing. They breathe with the sense of heaven. The lion is among us. And then the eagle. John's gospel has the sweep of eternity. The soaring one has nested in our straw. He has brooded over our darkness. He has descended to our caverns. The eagle, the God, is with us, says John. And, and then enter the ox. The ox, the rather clumsy but powerful beast, the unsung hero of labor, and the sacrifice for our nourishment. Mark's gospel is that gospel, the gospel of the ox, the servant. Perhaps it is significant that Mark's gospel is usually the first piece of scripture translated into a new tongue when translators, such as Wycliffe, unravel the mysteries of a language not reduced to writing. Why Mark, I have asked many times, and the answer is usually quickly given. Well, it's full of action. It has lots of verbs. The whole theme of Mark's gospel is service. Jesus and his disciples, they move, they walk, they act. He works, he performs, he does, he serves. That is the running step of the helper. You can hear the patient plodding of the ox. What a description for the God of heaven. He is our helper our friend. You've been listening to part one of Lewis Paul Lehman's 1978 Christmas Sermon. Part two will be aired next Sunday on Faith of Our Fathers.